So if you don't know, we just started a new series. I call it Homesick. And we're also starting the book of Galatians on Wednesday night. Um, Did the intro this last week. Uh, This Wednesday, we're gonna jump into the reason why Galatians is probably the rawest, um, at time almost rudest book in the New Testament. It's brilliant. Uh, You can join with us. We'll be right back here. Uh, If you weren't here last week, here's the summary. Here's what homesick is about. Uh, It's this thing in us that life can be really good. You can have a great job that pays the bills and you find satisfaction in. You can have a great spouse who you connect with on spiritual, mental, physical levels. It's awesome. You can have just the right amount of kids, 2.3, the average. (laughs) You can have an awesome vehicle, Volkswagen bus. Like everything can be just, it's as good, good as you could script. And yet, there's this feeling that you have at times where you think, is this it? Shouldn't it be even better than this? It's what Romans chapter eight, verse 20 calls futility. That creation has been subject to this futility. And you feel it during those times like, yeah, I have nothing to complain about. I should be happy right now, but I'm not. And what I call that is the echo of Eden. That we all know that we are created not for just a good life, but for a great, fantastic life. Better than you can even attain here. And we sense that because of the way that we are created. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And you can get the tape, not tape. (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) We're gonna do tapes from now on. We're going retro. The new building, tapes, baby. (laughs) You can podcast it. You can do whatever you want. But it fills in those ideas that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created this incredible space for humans to flourish at a level that we can't now. And there is in all of us a deep memory of that. But Genesis 3, sin broke that good thing that God had for us. Good news is Jesus comes and his goal is it's, Matthew, 20, Matthew 19, he says, I've come to renew all things. He says in John 14, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's an echo of the creative order in Genesis 1 and 2. That God says, I'm doing that, but it'll be even better. And it's the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, a garden city where the tree of life uprooted from Eden is now planted there. It's brilliant, okay? So we have good news that we have this hope that we're headed somewhere where those angst and that futility will be finally taken care of. But the problem is this, we're not there yet. So what do we do in the middle? How do we exist right now when we're homesick? When our hearts long for something more than this world can even provide for us, how do we live? Well, I would say the Bible, a huge portion of the Bible is written to people that were not in their homes. They're in exile. A massive part of it. The prophets are all either warning about exile or talking to people in exile, right? So I think there are these characters in the Bible that you see living with a homesickness and yet they do things in the midst of that that I think is brilliant. So that's 
the series. And our first guy we're gonna look at that gives us what we're supposed to do in the middle of these two is a guy by the name of Moses. So you can turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus is his story and it's incredible. And I'm gonna read a couple of things to give you the background of why um, he's in exile of, of, of the story. So Exodus one gives us the background to Moses. And the one word you can remember from him is this. What do we do in the middle? With his angst and his futility, we fight. That's the word for Moses. We fight. So check this out. Exodus chapter one, verse 13. The children of Israel are not in the promised land. They are in Egypt. They're in exile. And here's what happens. Exodus 1, 13. So they, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. You might feel that way at your job. And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So they're not in the promised land. They're exiled in Egypt. And in Egypt, they become enslaved to Pharaoh. And he forces them to work. But it gets even worse. Verse 15. When the king of Egypt, he's the Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Not only enslaved, but now infanticide. The babies, the boys of these families are being taken and killed, thrown into the Nile River, right? So here's how the story goes. Chapter two, verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, who doesn't believe that about their child? <laughs> This child is not a fine child. I don't know what's wrong with this child. <laughs> she saw that he was a fine child. She hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for, I love that she can hide him no longer. Like he gets rambunctious, right? Yeah. She took him and made a basket of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. Here's what she does. She takes this baby. She makes a little boat. She puts him in the boat and she puts it on the Nile River. And he starts to float down. Well, it just happens that Pharaoh's daughter is hanging out at the Illy with all of her friends and they're just whatever. And all of a sudden they see this little boat and they're like, hey, what's in the boat? And they go get it. And it's a baby. And so Pharaoh's daughter, who happens to be there, takes Moses, draws him out. Moses means drawn out. Names him Moses. And Moses now is raised as Pharaoh's grandson. Brilliant, huh? In the palace, Love and life. He's not working as a slave. He's not being killed. Here's what happens. Verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, 37 years old, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. 
So Moses, at some point in his life, 37 years of age, decides he's gonna leave the palace and he goes out and he's walking around. He knows he's a Hebrew. Maybe his adopted mom had told him. Somehow he finds it out. So he's walking among his people and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of his people. Bad. So here's what he does. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh, maybe a hand stuck out of the sand, something. His scheme is uncovered. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. So Moses now is double exiled. He's even exiled from his exile. And I can admire Moses's drive for justice. Dude, you're a bully and you're beating up on somebody and I'm not letting that happen. I can admire him for that, but his methods, not so much. So he sees something, sees this, this bad thing, sees an enslavement, sees a taskmaster and he says, I need to fight that. That is wrong. Methods aren't the best, but I think his motive was. And I believe that there are systems, if you would, pharaohs, that as the people of God, we're supposed to fight. I'll give you an example. On this example, I'm reading a book right now. It's by Robert Lithicum. It's called City of God, City of Satan. And what's interesting about this book is Robert Lithicum makes a case that he says in every city, there's a city of God. There's God's people that are shining and doing good stuff. But in that same city, right alongside of it, is the city of Satan, where bad things are happening and people are being abused and beaten and enslaved and hurt and bullied and all targeted. And they, and they exist right next to each other, right? And there's this story that actually hooked me on the book because he talks about when he was a youth pastor in Chicago back in 1957. He's an old guy. Read books by old guys. They know what's happening. Old guys rule. So he tells this story about being a young youth pastor in Chicago in 1957. He starts this youth group and it's on the wrong side of the tracks and he's reaching out to people that are not doing too well and he starts Bible studies and, and fun stuff with them and just does youth pastor stuff. And he starts to notice that these young girls, they'd come for a while and then they'd be siphoned off into prostitution for people on the other side of town. He's like, man, I gotta stop that. That's no good. So he starts to work on that and he starts to get his kids into the scriptures because he knows Psalm 119.11. How shall a young man, young woman cleanse her ways by taking heed to the word of God? And he starts surrounding them with good company because 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. Have good friendships. He starts teaching them to pray. God hears you, pray. So he's doing this, right? And there's this one young lady. He just said she was stunningly beautiful. And he was really worried about her being sucked into prostitution. And one day she came to him and actually said, I, I'm afraid I'm gonna get trapped in prostitution. 
And so he did what any good youth pastor would do, stay in the scriptures, stay around good friendships, be praying, right? And she's doing those things. So he's like, okay, good. Well, because of his denomination, he got pulled away for like three months to do something else. And then he comes back into Chicago, this part of Chicago, starts his stuff back up. And he notices a lot of familiar faces, but not that one young lady. And so he starts to ask, hey, what happened to her? And they say she got sucked into prostitution. And he's heartbroken over that. What? And so he goes over to her house, knocks on her door. And she opens the door and he just starts crying because he sees her. And the beauty, that, that, that spark in her is gone and just broke his heart. And he said, why? Why? You had good friends, godly friends, and you're in the Bible and you're praying. Why did you choose this? And she said, here's why. First, they came and told me, if I did not join them, they'd beat up my dad. And I wouldn't join them. So they put my dad in the hospital for a week, but I still wouldn't join him. And then they came back and said, if you don't join us, we'll put your brother in the hospital as well. I didn't join him. And they put my brother in the hospital. And then they came and said, if you don't join us, we'll put your mom in the hospital and we'll do even worse to her. And I couldn't go that far. And so I joined them. And so Robert is like, why didn't you call the police? And I'll quote what she says. She says, you white honky, who do you think they are? And it was in that moment that Robert Lithicum said, there are systems that are so up, so Pharaoh-like that there's no way for these people down here to ever, ever escape them unless that thing's dismantled up there. And so he started giving his life to looking at systems of oppression systems of enslavement, that until those are taken care of, man, you can't expect a 14-year-old girl to escape from that. That's too hard. So he started working on that stuff. And that's his whole premise. Like the people of God have to be like Moses's, seeing those things and saying, not in my town. Well, Matt, come on, we're Josephine County. This isn't 1957. It's not Chicago 2018 either, thank God. What about our city? Here's what I think. And I love Grants Pass. Like I've been able to travel all over the place and th there's something, I can't even explain it. Like I love Grants Pass. And, and I didn't know like the reputation of Grants Pass until I started getting out of Grants Pass. So I'd go up to seminary for two weeks at a time and then come back three times a year. And I'd always meet new people. And most of them were from Portland. And I'd be up there and they'd say, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, I'm a pastor in Grants Pass. And they'd be like, oh man, let me pray for you. And I'm like, what? Forget it, man. You live in Portland. Let me pray for you. I mean, come on. I don't get it. I love this city. I want to see this city transformed. And notice how it happens with Moses. What does he do in verse 11? He leaves his palace and goes out and sees the people in their burdens. He leaves his place of comfort where he was safe and secure. And he goes, I'm not staying here. I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna walk around. And I'm gonna look and I'm gonna listen I'm gonna see what burdens my people and I'm gonna allow those burdens to move me. That's what he does. 
I think the people of God, the city of God in Grants Pass, or Rogue River, or Cave Junction, or Selma, we're supposed to be like Moses, leaving our places of comfort. And it's so easy to stay there. I've got a beautiful beautiful city. I got a beautiful home out in the country, not in the city. And it's wonderful. It's phenomenal. I'm in the end of the driveway, end of a driveway, end of a driveway. If someone's at my house, they're visiting me or they're lost. Okay? It's got sanctuary. Moses left that, went in, was with the people. And that's when he saw their burdens. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to live like that. I'll give you an example of it. So um, we, my wife and I, our family, we have two new foster kids. They're awesome. Just total fun. And uh, there's always a process when you get new kids, you're trying to find out about the family and all that kind of stuff. And how, how do we really help these kids? And, and what's our history? So on Tuesday, this last Tuesday, the caseworker came over to my house and I'm gone, I'm at work. And she starts talking with my wife and explaining stuff to her. And she tells my wife, oh, the mom is in jail right now. And so my wife is like, can I go visit her? Can I go visit her? And the caseworker was like, what you say? I don't know. I've never had that request before. Um, let me check with my superior. I'm not sure, right? And so I get home and she's telling me the story. I'm like, why do you want to visit her so bad? And she said, because I want to win one. We've had a ton of kids through our home and we have yet to see the foster family come back together. And my wife was like, I want to win one. I don't want to see another family broken. I think maybe if I get into that jail when she's sober and it's mom to mom and I have her kids and I can tell her how beautiful and precious her kids are, maybe she'll fight for them. I just went, you are so awesome. Hurricane Heverly, look out. (laughs) That's the fight. I'm burdened by this thing. It doesn't matter that it hasn't happened with the last 20 kids. It can happen with these two. It can happen with these two. That's fighting. It's when you're burdened by what burdens people and you allow that to move you and you say, I'm gonna do something about that. I'm going to the jail, right? And there's bigger ones. Like here's one of mine. And these are just me. This is what I've seen. Like housing in Grants Pass. Average salary, $36,000. Average, you know what that means? You know what that means? Half the people make less than $36,000 a year. It's insane to me. How's a person making $36,000 a year ever buy a house in Grants Pass? How's this young family who gets married and they have a child? How in the world are they ever gonna own a home? That just breaks my heart. Something's broken in that, right? So we can complain about homelessness and be like, what's wrong? Well, some of it's bad choices, no doubt about it. People make bad choices, totally. But some of it is a system that's like almost rigged so you got these high rents in this crazy market. How in the world are they ever gonna save up money to be able to buy a home? And I wonder, I wonder what if we started saying at Edgewater, you know what, young Edgewater families, we got this community group of people that have, have we, we've got some extra income. And so we're gonna pool our income, $25,000 each, and we're gonna buy a cheap house. They're still out there. They're cheap, no doubt about it. They're messed up. We're gonna buy this cheap home. We'll put a little bit of money into it. Then we're gonna sell it to you. And in three years, you'll just take out a loan and you'll pay us off. What if we started doing, that's breaking systems. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Without somebody doing that, I I don't know how it's gonna work. And I got tons of these, but they're my burdens. And what's supposed to be happening 
to us who are the city of God, we're supposed to be leaving our places of comfort and walking and talking and listening and saying, Jesus, what can I do? Jesus, what can I do? How do I fight this? How do I fight the city of Satan that's in my town? How do I see it? the strong man of this city bound and cast out so your light can shine and flourishing can happen? Dreaming about the way things should be and saying, what can I do today? What, how can I fight today to see that happen? That's what Moses did, right? But here's what I think has happened to most of us. It's what happens to Moses. Watch this. So you know his story, right? He goes into exile. He's there for 40 years, just taking care of sheep. That's all he's doing. Just taking care of sheep. Got it pretty good. Good wife, some kids, 2.3. It's awesome. <laughs> then God comes to him after 40 years in a burning bush and says, Moses, come on, bro. Now check it out. For the sake of time, chapter three, verse seven. Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their suffering. I don't know how you came into this body of believers this morning, but maybe you feel like you have a taskmaster or a Pharaoh that's been oppressing you and enslaving you. And you've been crying out, listen to what God says. I've heard, I've seen, and I know. That's what God would say to you. I've heard, I've seen, and I know. And the rest of the book of Exodus is what God does about it. Take hope in that. So God tells Moses, hey, I've seen it, I've heard it, so here's what I wanna do, verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses wanted to do that at 37, right? I got this call on my life. He does it incorrectly, kills a dude. Now you would think, ah, second chance. God's gonna use me again. Awesome, let's go, God. Let's go do what I know I was destined to do. You would think Moses would say that. What does he say? Verse 11, but Moses said to God, this is excuse number one. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and bring the children out of Egypt. Excuse number one is this, but I'm a nobody. But I'm just a nobody. His perception of himself prevented him from fighting. I'm too small, Pharaoh's too big, forget it. God's answer. God's answer is a simple answer. You might be a nobody, but I'm not, and I'm with you. Go fight. And that's really a bunch of the rest of this chapter. But that's not enough. We got another excuse. Excuse number two, chapter four, verse one. So after all that, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter you're a nobody. I'm not a nobody. Okay, chapter four, verse one. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. Excuse number two, they will not believe me. 
because I'm a felon. I'm a murderer. They're not gonna believe me. So excuse number two is my past prevents me from being used. They know what I did. There's no way they're gonna listen to me. There's no way they're gonna believe me. No, right? He was allowing his dark past to ruin God's bright future. Anybody think that way? No, I can't be used. Like this dark past in me. God can't use me that way. God's answer is, I'm gonna work miracles through you that are so great and so incredible. No one will not believe you. How cool is that? I'm gonna work miracles through your life that are so big and so brilliant. Your past is not a problem for me. Well, excuse number three, chapter four, verse 10. But Moses said to Yahweh, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I love this. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. How long had God been speaking to Moses at this point? Half an hour? 40 minutes? Listen, God, nothing's changed in the last 30 minutes. I'm still not eloquent. Like we want this snap, snap thing. I love that. Okay, I've never been good at speaking. And since you've been talking to me um, for the last 45 minutes, I'm still not eloquent. (laughs) So funny. Just to me, note to self, no one else think it's funny. (laughs) But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Excuse number three, I lack the skill. I lack the skills to go and fight Pharaoh. You want me to talk to Pharaoh? I'm not eloquent. God's answer, your inability does not stop mine. Go fight. Finally, excuse number four, verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. No, not going. And if you keep reading, God gets mad then. It says the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. He gets mad. And essentially he says, Moses, go to Pharaoh. I don't care if you stutter, go now. You're doing this. My work will not be hindered by anything you have to say. Now, here's my question when I read that this week. Why is this in scripture? Moses wrote this. If I'm Moses, I'm skipping chapter three and four, right? It's not flattering to him at all. Why is it in scripture? Because it's you and me right? Scripture is a light that illuminates you and me. We do the exact same things to God, don't we? We are exactly the same. I'm nobody. I don't have the skill. I've got a really rotten past. No, I won't go. We're exactly like Moses. That's why it's in here. It's to show you and me that doesn't stop it. And so instead of us going and fighting pharaohs, we don't even climb in the ring anymore. I tried that when I was 27 or 17 and it didn't work and I'm not doing it now. I don't have the skill. I'm a nobody, forget about it. And so we don't even climb in the ring and the Pharaohs win by forfeit because God's people don't do anything because we're just like Moses. And what I think God is saying to, to Moses in here is, buddy, dream again. 
Dream like you did when you were 37. Dream like you did when you were young. Think bigger. I think that's what God is saying. Come on. Is anything too hard for me? Come on. Right? It's exactly what Jesus does with his disciples. The harshest rebuke in the Bible. When Jesus literally got mad at his disciples, like Yahweh got mad at Moses, is in Matthew 17. Harshest rebuke. And the disciples are trying to cast out a demon. They couldn't. And Jesus, I'll read it for you. It's, it's good. Jesus says this. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? <laughs> How'd you like Jesus say that to you? You faithless, perverted, twisted generation. I mean, that's hardcore. Now why? Well, keep reading. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Dream big. You guys, don't you realize how important this is? These demons, this stuff is not supposed to prevent you from doing my work. And then the next chapter, two chapters from here, chapter 19. You're having this discussion about who can be saved. And Jesus says this, listen, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get saved. And they're like, what? Who can be saved then? And Jesus' answer is, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And perhaps you've heard the story about that the eye of the needle is supposed to be a gate that camels would have to walk through when the big gate got closed. Anybody ever heard, hear that? They have to get down like on their, well, their elbows and their knees and shuffle through that little gate. It was called the camel gate. Anybody heard that? Okay, Charity and I walked around Jerusalem for over a week, two years ago. There's no camel gate. It doesn't exist. It was invented in the 17th century to make the words of Jesus easier. That's what it was. Right? Right? Because camels can't go through the eye of a needle, right? No, unless you use a blender, they're not getting through the eye of a needle. <laughs> but because that was such a hard thing, we had to be make, well, well, we better make it possible somehow. No, Jesus makes the answer. With man, it is impossible, right? It's not, well, if you try really hard and get him down on his knees, he'll shuffle through. No, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. It's look, expand, think bigger think bigger. That's what Jesus is saying. It's exactly what God's saying to Moses. You can fight, expand, think bigger. Tons of scripture say this. Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you could ask or think. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard the wonderful things that God has in store for those that love him. John 14, 12, you will do greater things than I've done. And that one always is made easier too. Well, collectively, the church will do greater things than Jesus. Is that what Jesus says? Hey, collectively, the church will do greater things than me. No, you will do greater things than me. That's what scripture says. 
But here's what I think has happened to many of us. We're like Moses. We're like trained fleas. Remember that illustration I gave? Like fleas are the most, they're the strongest creature on earth. They can jump 150 times their size. No other creature can do that. But you can train a flea. You put him in a jar, put a glass lid on it. He will hit his head or she will hit her head on that ceiling, that lid 15, 20 times. And then from that point on, it'll jump about a millimeter below that lid and you can take that lid off and it'll never jump out. Now that's what homesick does to us. That's what exile does to us. We hit our head too many times like Moses did. I tried that, I failed. Forget it, I'm not trying anymore. And like Moses, we make excuses. Well, we can't fight Pharaohs and we forfeit before we ever climb in the ring. And the city of Satan grows in our community and the city of God dims. And it's sad to me. It's sad. Well, how? How do we recover? How do we get that spark back in us? There's another old guy in the Bible. His name is Caleb. And there's a great story about him in Joshua 14. And in Joshua 14, Caleb, he's a national hero at this time. He comes in the promised land. He has his choice of anything. Choose your land, what do you want? He could have said, you know, I'm 85. I want a house on the golf course. I wanna play some links, relax. I want a house on the lake. I wanna do some fly fishing. Nothing wrong with golf, nothing wrong with fly fishing. I'm not saying that, but he doesn't. You know what he says? He says, you heard how there's a mountain with giants on it. Give me that. You know why? Because I am as strong today as when I was 45 to go out and fight. And I wanna keep fighting. I wanna go out and keep fighting. And it says this, that Caleb took the mountain with the giants on it. And to this day, whenever that was written, it's still in his family. He fought and he won. Now, why was Caleb that kind of guy? Well, he tells us in verse 12 of that little section. He says this, because I've seen Yahweh, how great he is. What had happened in Caleb's life is he'd been confronted with such power and might of Yahweh. All he wanted to do from that point on was see the power and might of Yahweh unleashed. I knew this, playing golf is fun, but I probably won't see the power of Yahweh unleashed unless I make a hole in one, which would be awesome. But I'll take the mountain with the giant on it because that's where I'll see his power released. I'll take the fight. I'll take the Pharaoh. That's where I want to be. That's what he said. Have you been confronted with the greatness of God? That's what it boils down to. Because I think once you are, once you are, it transforms you. That Moses actually needed Pharaoh. Like I've always asked, like, why didn't God just go in and trash Pharaoh and get his people out? You know why? Because Moses needed Pharaoh. What makes Moses great? We wouldn't know about Moses today if he just stayed out in the wilderness, keeping sheep, relaxing with his family. We know Moses today because God grabbed him and said, I have a Pharaoh for you. And you're gonna take out Pharaoh. And in the process, you're gonna become something incredible and great. That's why. I think God has Pharaohs for us. Like John Knox, give me Scotland or I die. Why do we know John Knox? Because he said, I got a Pharaoh and it's called Scotland and I want that place or else I die. William Carey, the greatest missionary in modern history. He said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Why do we know William Carey? Because he did that, right? George Whitfield, either give me souls or take my soul. 
and he sparked the Great Awakening. Why do we know George Whitfield? Because he had a pharaoh that said, I'm taking that out. We need pharaohs. We need them. They create in us something. They make us great. They, they, they keep us from this homesick futility. That's what they do. We need fight. We need it. But as I studied this, and as I read this, here's what I thought. I'm Moses chapter three. That's what I am. I've been in ministry since 1998, 20 years. And I've tried things and hit my head on stuff. And you know what? I've become kind of complacent and satisfied with things. Well, you know, I don't think that'll work. I find myself saying that now. I don't know if that'll work. I thought, God, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy making excuses why it won't work. So how, God, do you get this? How do you rip this out of me? How do you help me to jump high again? Expect great things from you, attempt great. How do I do that? And I just happened to read Acts because you see there are some incredible things happen. And in Acts 2, 17, it says this, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And it says this, and the old men will dream dreams. I may not be old yet, but I'm not young. And you know what I said, God, I need your spirit poured out on me afresh. So I start dreaming dreams again. So I start seeing things in a bigger potential where I'm confronted with your greatness. And because of your greatness, I say, it doesn't matter what Grants Pass has. It doesn't matter what people think about Grants Pass. You're greater. Like we have, there's probably a couple thousand people that call Edgewater home. Not always here every Sunday, which is another story. But that's a tipping point number we talk about transforming a population. That's a number that changes. When you look at ratios, changes the city. Like if we started really listening to burdens and starting saying, Jesus, what can I do? We can change Grants Pass. I'm convinced of it because we serve a great God. I think it's calling people that maybe have tried it before and maybe hit a glass ceiling like me time and time again and had their heart kind of numbed. He's saying, step back in, fight the Pharaoh. Don't forfeit it, get in the ring. And so my prayer has been for the last couple days, last week really, Jesus, pull out of me, pull out of me that ceiling, pull out of me the excuses that I make just like Moses. Pour out on me your spirit of expectancy that you do great things. And with God, nothing is impossible. That's been my prayer. And here's what I think this morning. I think there's a number of people that are sitting here today that are just like me and just like Moses. That now you're saying, we've tried that before. Now that didn't work. Now I can't be changed. Now that Pharaoh will always be there. Now I'll always be this way. That you, you, you've, you've become a trained flea like me. And you need, like me, to have that ripped out of you and God's spirit poured out on you so you start to dream big again. Start living lives of expectancy. That's what I think. And so I felt compelled yesterday morning to say, I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for myself, like I've been praying. And if you'd say, you know what? I'm a lot like Moses. I do see burdens, I do have thoughts, but in the back of my mind, I have this idea that my past is gonna pollute me. Uh, no one's gonna listen to me. Uh, I don't have the skill to do that. Um, I'm just a nobody. That these excuses keep ringing in my head and so I don't do it. 
And you need to be confronted with the greatness of God, like I do, and have his spirit poured out on you. I wanna pray for you because we need you. And you need pharaohs. You actually need them. They're good for you. Caleb said, it's bread for me. This feeds me, it strengthens me. We need the fight. We actually need it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise your hand if you know, that's me. And then I'm gonna pray for us. So just put your hand up. God sees it. Jesus, we, we read Moses and it's like a mirror. That's what it is. It's a mirror of us failing and trying and giving up and then making excuses why we can't be used anymore. And Jesus, we're tired of excuses. We're tired of seeing our city being used as a tool of the enemy. We wanna see our city set on fire with the power of your spirit and the redemption of salvation. That's what we wanna see. And it starts with us. It starts with me. So forgive me for my unbelief. Forgive us collectively for our unbelief. Rip out from inside of our hearts the fake ceiling that we put up that says we can't, so you can't. How lame is that? And pour out your spirit on us. Empower us. May we see the burdens in Grant's past. And just like you left eternity, left perfection, left your palace, and you came not just to listen to our burdens, but to bear them. Jesus, may we do the same thing. And may we see Pharaoh's fall and your people led into the promised land, being set free, being dynamic, being powerful. That's what we want. So give us your spirit, we pray. And we ask this in your name, amen. We have two other things to do before we go. We do prayer right over here after every Sunday service. If you need prayer, sometimes you just need somebody to put their hand on you and pray for you. Maybe you're in a storm. Maybe you have a Pharaoh. Maybe there's an oppression. Maybe there's something. We'd love to pray for you. It happens right over here. And we do baptisms. We'll do one this week. We'll do one next week. If you've been thinking about being baptized, you got two weeks. And then it's kind of a long stretch, but we'll always take you to Baker Park. It's cold and we may lose you, but. <laughs> Come be baptized. Baptism is this. It's saying, I belong to the family of Jesus. That's all it's saying. I identify with the family of Jesus. He saved me. He's put a stamp on me. Water doesn't save me. Baptism doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. And now I'm identifying, I'm putting on the jersey, I'm getting off the bench, I'm getting on the field saying, I belong, to the, I belong to the people of Jesus. I'm identifying with his people. And something magnificent happens. It says the old you dies and a new you was resurrected in that moment. There's something about it. I can't put my finger on it, but I've seen it in my own life and seen it in other people's lives. It's Romans chapter six, it's brilliant. So both of those are available for you. Megan's gonna sing a bit. 
You can stay, enjoy, think, pray, or you can go enjoy this beautiful Sunday. God bless you guys.